In our scripture text this morning, Jesus connects who he is as the Christ with his death on the cross. Now, the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross is a huge topic. It's a lot to take on in a sermon. And I wanted to take a moment to explain something I'm going to say a little bit later. It's to do with what we usually think of as atonement, the, the way that Jesus' death reconciles us to God. Some of the classic ways of saying this, right? That Jesus has died for our sins to reconcile us to God. The scriptures give us metaphors and images and important phrases for this topic, but they stop short of fully elaborate theories. And a lot of what we bring to the text actually comes from later tradition. So a lot of our atonement theology is often influenced by theories that came from the Middle Ages. And, and it especially goes like this. Because of human sin, and because it's so offensive to God, someone needed to die. A perfect sacrifice had to be made to satisfy God's wrath. Now that actually comes from an era much later than the scriptures. And it's, it's not necessarily at all what, what I believe. And it, I, I believe it's what many of us have tried to distance ourselves from in the idea that God is so angry that only a satisfactory death will appease God. So I will share with you that my convictions on this topic are, are shaped in part by what insights from Martin Luther, who talked about the atonement as a great exchange, a paradoxical exchange. Jesus Christ dies for human beings, taking on what's on our side of the ledger, sin, death, despair, and gives us life, peace, reconciliation with God. It's not a logical exchange, it's a paradoxical, unthinkable, miraculous exchange. And it's one that we receive by faith. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
I've selected that verse as the starting place for our sermon today. The topic of setting our minds on divine things. Divine things. The things about God. Theology. Theology, for example, what's often said that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Jesus is the eternal word of God. Jesus is the son of God. This is one of the questions that perhaps our confirmation youth and their teachers have been puzzling about together in recent months. It may be a question that you yourself also have pondered over. And perhaps for you it has been a stumbling block. After all, what a scandalous thing. How can one human life, a carpenter, Jewish-Palestinian life in the first century, be divine? be full of the mystery of God, be universal in its meaning. How can this be? It's a scandal. It's part of training for pastors, typically before ordination to send them out to preach in parishes like I am today for you, to send them first of all into hospitals so that theology can be tested, can, can meet the true severity of human suffering. I did my chaplaincy and training in a large, mostly secular hospital in London, Ontario, Canada. And there I met a woman named Julia. I visited Julia throughout my time in chaplaincy. She was an elderly Catholic woman of great faith. She was divorced. And her current love was not a man she had married. And she had a great deal of guilt and feelings of unworth around this that came from her Catholic upbringing. When I would visit with her, she would ask me to pray with her, to read the scriptures. She introduced me to praying with the rosary, something I wasn't familiar with. She would share pictures of her family and talk with me with whatever came to her mind and want me to hold her hand. In the second last week of my time at that hospital, I got a call that Julia had taken a severe turn for the worse and that she was asking for a chaplain. The nurse who called me got my name wrong. She announced me at the hallway to Julia. Chaplain Otis is here to see you, Julia. Do you remember Otis? <laughs> Hang on, Otis. Okay, okay. I'm going to bring Otis in now, Julia. And then she, from her hospital bed, in a raspy voice, greeted me. Hello, Otis. I gamely took all this on, knowing that far more important was the fact that I could be there for her in what could be the last time. She took the initiative in the conversation, and she said, Otis, I'm not a good person. I was taken aback with the force that she said this with. And reaching back to the training that they give you as a chaplain to prepare you for these kind of encounters, active listening, reflection on body language, emotional cues, I reflected back to her, not a good person? She didn't respond, so I offered, Julia, 
You look beautiful and dignified, as you always do. What's on the inside reflects what's on the outside. And she said, how do you know? Again, taken aback and realizing this was more serious, I said to her, Julia, remember, we've prayed many times, and we can pray again now. Let's pray that we can trust your life into the hands of a gracious God. And she said, how do you know? How do you know that God is going to accept me? And so, realizing that words are sometimes not what's most important, I reached over for her rosary beads and her crucifix. And I held it up so that she could see it. And I clasped, clasped it between our hands. And I tried to say something like, Julia, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has died for you. And for his death, you are reconciled with God and all your sins are completely forgiven. Why the sign of this cross? And she closed her eyes and she nodded. In our gospel lesson, Jesus has asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has just finished responding, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are Savior. But then Jesus goes on to say, Tomorrow, I must go on to Jerusalem. I must be crucified. I must suffer greatly. I must be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Peter explodes, This must never happen to you. Peter wants to take the name of Christ and plant it somewhere else. Anywhere else. Somewhere beautiful. Somewhere safe somewhere that matches our ideals of who a savior must be. Somewhere in a system guaranteed not to fail. And that's what Jesus says is the scandal. That's what Jesus says is the stumbling block. That's what Jesus says is the offense. Because he says, I must do these things. I must die in order to reach you, in order to come across to you, in order to get through to you. Like the word of the cross in Julia's hands, like the word of the cross that goes not where we want it to go, but where we can on our own go. That's where God speaks to us from the cross in Jesus. So we miss the point when we puzzle over the question of Jesus as a divine savior, as if it was an intellectual puzzle we could resolve, that we could solve for ourselves to leave us satisfied with an answer intellectually or morally, because it's far more the case that the word of the cross and who Jesus is solves the mystery, the puzzle of our own lives, speaking to us in the places that we can't resolve on our own, that we can't hold together on our own, no matter our rationalizations, our defenses, our ideals, our dreams. It's where all those things end and where all those things die 
But Jesus says, there I'm with you. And that's where the love that is divine, the love that is of God, and not merely our own self-love or our hope for what love will be in this world, that's where divinity, divine love, is born. In the midst of the pandemic, we as church, we as First Congregational Church, may feel like we've lost so much. We've lost the beauty of being able to make music all together in person. We've lost the joy and the relationships that come through our social interactions together, the events we want, the social and service and justice events that we believe are right for us to do. We've lost the use of our building, that the way we want to use it. And it's even the case that our values of justice, equality, of humanity and dignity, we don't have any guarantee that they're going to win out as we watch the news cycle day by day. But what really counts, and what has always counted for us as church, is the love of God, is the love of God that is radical, that is shown to us from the cross, that speaks to us where we can't speak to ourselves. That can, that can be the place where we can begin from, where we can remember who we are, where we can be held, and where we can find our way to go on. The word of the cross helps us be honest with accepting the hard things we have to accept as we make our way as church together, as we are patient with one another, as we suffer through the changes of what it is to be church in these times. And so what I want to say to you, what I want to say clearly to you, is yes, you are members of an organization, and yes, you are dedicated volunteers, and yes, you are creative problem solvers and content producers, but you are more than that. You are disciples of the God of love revealed in Jesus Christ, and that's who you are, and that's what's going to see us through. And as a committed Protestant, I can offer you, in my last sermon, the invitation to, in your own prayer life, take up the cross, as Jesus says, and make the sign of the cross on yourself, bodily, if it can speak to you in a way that your own feelings and your own words may not speak to you, if it can remind you of the story of God's love that upholds you and this church, if it can be the place from where you can start your day, as Julia, on her last day, found hope, as we, in the midst of our lives, receive the day ahead, may the sign of the cross, the word of the cross, the word of Jesus Christ uphold you and keep you. Amen.